How we doing, everybody? It's good to see you today in church. Um, let me just say a couple of things real quick before we jump in um, that I have really enjoyed these last several weeks, actually going all the way back to at the movies. Uh, if you were part of that with us, it was a great time. But then also just hearing from uh, Robert a few weeks ago, hearing from Pastor Katie uh, last week. Just a great opportunity for those of you who are maybe relatively new to our church. During the summer, uh, I try, not always able to do it, but I try to get away for a few weeks or at least take a preaching break for a few weeks um, just to be able to kind of pray and plan and think about the fall and our church and where we're headed. And so always incredibly grateful. I know there, it's such a privilege to be able to do that because there are so many pastors that would love the opportunity to do that. I know because I talk to them and uh, they're not able to. So just to be able to have people in the church people on the staff who could uh, come and share with us and, and not only just fill in, but do an amazing job. And so thank you to them and thank you to you. Hope you've had a great summer. I know I have. And I know summer's not technically over, but in our house, because I'm married to a teacher, it's pretty much over. And uh, so life is getting back to normal. So anyway, glad to be back. I'm going to try to not preach too long today. But when, you, when a preacher hasn't preached in a while, I got a lot to say. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. But um, but yeah, I want to talk today, uh, 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 or answer this question today, talk around this topic today. Um, how can you know you're growing? How can you know you're growing? That's, that's what I want to talk about, the, the question that I want to answer today, uh, specifically, spiritually speaking. Like physically, we know we're growing when we take a, some type of measurement. We stand against a wall on a door frame, and we take a marker, and we go, oh, look, I grew, you know, or uh, we go to the... Uh, doctor's office and step on the scale and we go, oh, oh I grew, you know? Um, so we know physically ways that we're growing, but spiritually speaking, how can we know we're growing? If you're here today, you're a Christian, you're following Jesus, how can you know, how can you be sure that you're actually spiritually growing? Maybe it's called spiritual maturity or spiritual growth or spiritual depth or whatever you want to call it. How can you be sure? And when I ask that question, how can you be sure that you're growing for many of us in the room who grew up in churches, no matter what kind of church, really, it doesn't matter what kind of church, just grew up in a religious environment or maybe grew up with parents or grandparents who were Christians, the traditional answer for that question, not necessarily the wrong answer, just the traditional answer for that question, how can I be sure that I'm growing, would be in quantitative ways. So we would say, well, how much are you praying? How long are you praying? How often are you praying? How many, how many verses in the Bible, how many chapters of the Bible have you read? How many times have you attended church? Um, you know, how, how, how many things have you given up for God? Uh, how much money are you giving? Are you giving more money away than you were before? Hey, how is your temper? On a scale of 1 to 10, if your temper or your anger used to be an 8, where is it at now? We would try to, because of the way that we are kind of trained in our everyday life, we would think about growth in terms of measurement, you know, numbers, quantities, scales, those types, of, those types of things. And I want to be really careful with this because I think having positive answers to all those questions is a great thing. I think you should be praying more. I think you should be reading your Bible more. I hope you are in church more. I hope your temper is not as bad. I hope you're saying fewer cuss words and losing your cool less often and I hope all of those things are, are true about you, but there are two potential problems with, with measuring spiritual growth by performance. There's probably more, but there's at least two. The first one is motivation, motives. 
Because all of us would agree that it's possible to do right things for wrong reasons. All of us would agree that you could do all the things that I listed, pray and read and attend and give. You could do all of those things for bad reasons, right? You could, you could do those things for the wrong reasons. What about this? What if you're praying more because you're terrified if you don't, God will punish you? Is that a good thing? No, it's not a good thing. It's good that you're praying, but if you're doing it out of terror and fear, I would say not necessarily a great thing uh, or the right motivation, right? Um, a lot of us can relate to this when, when you think about your senior year of, of high school, uh, when everybody, your guidance counselor, your parents, or somebody kept telling you about your college resume. Well, you need to do that. It'll look good on your college application, Oh, you need to join that group. You need to attend that thing. You need to take on that extracurricular. You need to write that paper because it'll look good on your college application, your college resume. And you didn't want to do it, and you had no desire to do it. And after you got accepted to college, you would never do it again. But if you needed to do it to get accepted, you would do it. And I think sometimes that could be true about our, our, our walk with God. I don't necessarily want to do it, but... It'll look good to God or to other people, so I'm going to do it. So that's one potential problem with performance, kind of gauging growth by performance is motivation. But the second potential problem with using kind of quantity to decide or to see if we're growing spiritually is just the idea of, of measurement to begin with because spiritual growth by definition is something supernatural, it's something that God does in you, not something that you do in yourself. So I used the example earlier about height. You cannot make yourself taller. You know, I guess you could stretch your body some way or something, or I don't know, I'm sure you could try something. But you cannot, like your height is out of your control. It's something that is, you know, either predetermined or for whatever reason, you know, it's something that you don't control yourself. There's, not, there's really nothing you can really do about it. What you could do is you could wear shoes with bigger heels, and you could look taller, but you would not be taller. And so if we were to measure you and we would say, oh, look, you, I got taller, that would not be true, would it? it? You would not be taller. You would just appear taller. Or if I was to take wood or bricks or I was begin to stack up, uh, let's just say at bricks. If I was to take a, a bunch of bricks and I was begin to stack them up, Technically, we could not say that the stack of bricks was growing. We could say it's getting taller, but we could not say that it's growing because growth is something that happens internally and then is shown outward, the way a plant or a tree grows or your body grows. Growth is something that cannot be, you know, performed. It's something that happens. Does that make sense to everybody? Same is true with spiritual growth. And so... In the same way physically or in nature, spiritual growth is something that happens to us. And every single one of us in the room today, we know people, maybe we are the person, but we know people who do the things on the list that I mentioned. They, they read their Bible, they attend church, they give money, they, they, they morally try to do some good things, but you know them and you, you would say, not that we're trying to make judgments, it's not our job, but I'm saying just for the, this example, you would say they do the things that you mentioned on that list, but they, I don't get the sense that they actually are closer to God. I don't get the sense that they actually are more necessarily in love with Jesus, right? 
And so how can we actually be sure that we are growing as a Christian? If, if growth and Christian maturity is not measured by activity, then how do we measure it? Let me tell you how this sermon came about. You know, there's always an origin of a sermon in a preacher's mind. And um, so I'll tell you how this one came about. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, I come upstairs. My wife, uh, Andrea, was having her small group in our living room, and uh, they were getting ready to be done. And I came upstairs from the basement, and she said, oh, hey, Jason's here. He can answer this question for us. That's awesome. You know, that's the great setup. And, um, and she, Andrea asked me a question. She said, um, she said, Jason, we were just having this discussion in, in our group here. Do you think it's possible to become all the way like Jesus? As in, like, you could, like, master all your sins and all your faults and all your bad habits. And, like, you know, idealistically, it would be possible to be so close to Jesus that you don't sin anymore. And, um, you know, when you're married to a pastor, you can ask questions like that. You know, I don't know if that's what you're asking your spouse, but that's what our, my spouse asked me. And I said, no, no, you can't. And she was deflated. And uh, in her frustration, she said, well, what's the point then? What's the point? What's the point of trying to do all of those things? And then a little bit later that night, we were going to dinner, and we, she brought it back up in the car. And, uh, and then she grabbed my journal and a pen, and she drew me a picture. I actually brought the picture with me. They're going to put it up on the screen for you. But Andrea, she drew this picture. And she said, okay, like, I I'm confused. I'm confused because, like, she said, like, I get the gospel salvation part. Like, I'm born, and then at some point in my life, you know, like, I get saved. This is the drawing here she drew to us. Uh, this is what, this is date night for the Isaacs here. And, um, and she said, like, I get it. Like, I get saved. At the, at the second line there, I get saved. You know, first line, I'm born. Second line, I get saved. And then, the, but then, like, I don't just go to heaven. There's, like, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in there, you know, and and then I die, and I spend eternity with God. She's like, I get all this stuff up to the second line, but what about all this stuff after the second line? Five, 10, 15, 20 years. What about my sin? What about I'm, like, I'm called, my purpose in life? What about being sanctified? What, like, what, what do I do about all the stuff after the, the second line? And I explained the answer to her that I'm about to explain to you. And she said, really? And I said, yeah. She said, you should really preach about that more often. And so here we are. Here we are. The Holy Spirit and my wife prompted me to, to, to speak on this. And what, what Andrea was saying, and the question she was asking, and it's a question we all ask, is I think all of us begin our Christian journey with this idea in some way that we want to be so in love with God that at some point in that journey, all of our struggles, all of our problems, all of our bad habits and our vices, all of the things that we don't like about ourselves, that we could somehow be so in love with Jesus that all of those things would be uh, overcome. They would be overcome. But then the longer you serve Christ, the more you realize and become frustrated that, yes, you are following Jesus, but and some things in your life have changed, praise God. Some things in your life have changed. You are becoming a different person, but there are also those things that have been around and, and, and you can't seem to, to overcome. And then if you really want to start getting down into the weeds on it, you begin to think things like, if God loves me anyway, and I'm never going to totally be as great as I want to be or as good as I want to be, but I don't have to be good for God because I talk about that all the time, then why should I 
stress about it? Why should I, you know, really spend a lot of time and effort trying to grow or to change or to fix my flaws? And, and if I am, by the way, let's just say I decide that I want to I wanna try, I want to be better, I want to grow, I want to get rid of my bad habits. How do I know it's working anyway? I come to church. I've been coming to church for years. I've been joining groups. I've been trying to pray. I, I've been serving on teams. And as I look at my life, two, three, 10, 20 years now as a Christian, how can I be sure that all of this effort, all of this, these things that I'm trying to do, how can I be sure that it's working? How, how can I be sure that it's working? There's a great line in, uh, in Mere Christianity we, we quote Mere Christianity a lot, C.S. Lewis, but it's a great line, really a great section, chapter 7, book 4 of Mere Christianity, uh, where Lewis uses the example of beauty and the beast and to, to describe the Christian life. And you know the story. He says, he says that, you know, there's a girl who had to marry a beast, and she kissed that monster. And much to her surprise and relief, the monster became a prince, right? We know the story. And Lewis says... We are the beast. We're the beast. And we have been kissed by a beauty. Underneath that, that, that beast, this, this nastiness, underneath all of that, there is a prince. And God chooses us. While we are still the beast, he takes us and he chooses us and he kisses us. And it's because of the love and because of the kiss that the beast becomes prince, not the other way around. And we can't make ourselves the prince any more than the beast could. It was only the love and the kiss from the girl that could change him. And this so perfectly describes the Christian life. We cannot change our spiritual condition. Only, only a kiss from God can do that. Only the love of God could do that. And then Lewis says this, I want to share this with you. He says, talking about the Christian life, living the Christian life, he said, it's more like painting a portrait than like obeying a set of rules. And the odd thing is that while in one way it is much harder than keeping rules, in another way it is far easier. The real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his, his zoe into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier, using a different analogy there, to a live man. The part of you that does not like it is the part that is still tin. And, and what, what Lewis is describing is spiritual growth. He's describing the Christian life. He's describing everything beyond the line that was drawn that day in my journal. He's describing changing and growing. And what he's saying is that the Christian faith is not something that we can do for ourselves. It is something that is done to us. And maybe when I say that, there's this... I don't know about that. I mean, I, I can come to church. I, I can read my Bible. I can pray, and you're right. But can you really make yourself more loving? Can you really make yourself more patient? More joyful? 
You can certainly do things patient people would do. You could certainly do things loving people would do, joyful people would do. But can you, are you capable of changing on the inside, changing yourself, taking on the responsibility to make yourself a more loving, patient, joyful person? You certainly cannot. You cannot. We would all have to admit that where those things have changed in our life, it would not be because we were capable of doing it. It would be because we feel as if in some way we have been kissed by a beauty. We're a beast. But it's the love of the beauty. It's the love of the girl. It's the love of the God that begins to turn that beast into a prince. And a little bit later in that chapter, Lewis says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, no matter how hard you try, you can't give yourself new motivations. Think about it. You can't. You can decide that you're going to do different actions, but you cannot change your motivations, why you're doing what you're doing. You can look in the mirror and tell yourself that you're going to change your motivations and change the reasons that you want to do what you want to do, but you can't change your motivations. Those have to be given to you. And Lewis ends by saying, after the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. And I wonder how that makes you feel when you hear that. As I've spent the last five or ten minutes telling you that you cannot change yourself internally, your motivations, you cannot make yourself more loving, patient, joyful. Spiritual growth, spiritual life has to be done for you through the Spirit internally in your life, that it must be done by God. How do you feel when you hear that? It's an ironic thing because what you should feel is great. What you should feel is less pressure. What you should feel is exhaustion and burden and pressure coming off your shoulders, and you should be taking a deep breath going, thank goodness that it's not my responsibility. But that's not actually how we feel, right? When we hear that our moral effort can't fix our spiritual condition and that only God can change us on the inside... We don't like that all that much because that's beyond our control. And what we want is we want God to tell us exactly what to do, how often to do it, and when to do it, and we'll try our best, and we'll take it from here. So just tell me what, when, and how often. I'll take it from here. And I'd like it if God would help me, but I'll handle it. But the Christian life doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like every other relationship in your life. It's something that is done in you. It's something that is done for you. And so we come back to this original question. What am I supposed to do as a Christian, and how do I know if it's working? Have I made you curious yet? What what am I supposed to do? It's done for me, so what am I supposed to do, and how do I know if it's working? Which brings us back to our scripture today, Galatians that Brent's read for us, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. All the New Testament books are just letters that were put together into a book. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an apostle, it's a, it's a disciple, it's a leader uh, who's writing 
personally to Christians in this particular letter about 20 or 30 years after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. So these are first-generation Christians in Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to them, trying to help them understand how to live the Christian life. Everything after the second line, Paul's trying to help them understand Their struggle is our struggle. They know that God loves them and that Jesus saves them, but they also believe that after being saved, it is now their responsibility to be good Christians, to change themselves, to um, grow and mature. It's their responsibility. And I'm sure you've felt that pressure before. Now, everyone in the room is not a Christian, but for those of us in the room who are a Christian, you know what that feels like, to know that God loves you and to know that Jesus saves you, but to feel a real pressure that it is now your responsibility after being saved, after that second line, to not mess it up, to validate it, to prove that you're getting it and that you're a good Christian. And so the way that we do that, the way that we try to prove that we're getting it and that it's working and that we're growing is we try really, really, really hard to do all the things that people tell us we should do. This is what they're doing, uh, the Galatian churches, this is what they're doing. They're trying very, very hard. To their credit, they are really trying hard. They're devoted, they're committed, they're trying very hard to do the things that the people who are in charge are telling them that they need to do because this is what good Christians would do. And for them, specifically in their context, it means obeying all of the Old Testament laws that Moses gave, 613 of them. The problem was these Christians were not Jewish. They were, uh, they were um, not Jewish Christians, and so they were having to learn all this, and they're reading all these laws, and there's some in there, if you haven't read it, probably have, that are like, huh? Like, they, if you didn't grow up Jewish, you're not sure about all this stuff, and, but this is what good Christians do, and so see if you can relate to what they're experiencing. They become Christians because they believe in Jesus, but then after becoming a Christian, they feel pressure to try really hard to do all the things Christians are supposed to do. Be a good Christian mom, a good Christian dad, a good church member a good neighbor, a good citizen, a good leader. So what is Paul's advice to Christians who are trying really hard to be good Christians? It's not what you think it would be. He doesn't say, good job. He doesn't say, hey, you should consider being a leader because you're knocking it out of the park and we need you to help everybody else do what you're doing. He doesn't say any of that. Galatians 3, we read 1 through 5, and I'm just going to start at verse 2. Paul, writing to these Christians, trying to be really good Christians, says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses, by trying really hard? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? To which they probably thought, huh? Like, dude, we're like trying really hard. What do you mean foolish? He says, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Which is a valid question for us all. Why are you trying to be perfect? Why are you trying to eradicate any and all flaws and wrong? Like, why can you only think of what you're doing wrong? And why can you only think of where you need to grow? And why can you only think of where you don't measure up? Why can all of us criticize ourselves but never celebrate ourselves? 
Why is it that we feel so dissatisfied with our existence so often of the time? Paul's asking them. I think he's asking us. It would be fair. Why are you trying to become perfect? Why are you so anxious and nervous and fearful that you're not doing enough? Why are you so afraid to fail? Why do you always feel ashamed? Why do you always feel condemned and not good enough? And he keeps going. Verse 5, he said, I ask you again. Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? You try really, really, really hard. Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In other words, Paul is asking this question. Paul says, valid question that I think all of us need to consider for ourselves. Paul says, has trying really good, has trying to be really, really good for God made you feel closer to God? Has living under the pressure of performance caused you to feel more of the Spirit of God in your life? Have you seen more miracles in your life? Have you felt more of the presence and the peace of God in your life because of all of your effort? Paul says, don't be ridiculous. And he gives us this answer in the next sentence. It's right in front of our face, but you probably missed it. Let's read it one more time. Galatians 3, 5. How do I live the Christian life and how do I know if it's working? I ask again, does God give the Holy Spirit and work miracles because you obey the law? Of course not. Here it is. It is because you believe. Everybody say believe. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Now, Paul says this twice in the five verses that we read today. But I don't know if you noticed this or not, but he changed the tense on us. So in verse 2, they're going to put it back up on the screen for you, but in verse 2, he says, let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed. Everybody say believed. You believed the message that you heard about Christ. But then in verse 5, he says, it is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. This is not an accident. Paul didn't make a mistake. He wasn't bad at writing, so he didn't realize he was switching tenses on us. Paul is saying that being a Christian means that at one time in the past, at this conversion moment, you believed. It was as clear as if you were looking at Jesus Christ hanging on the cross right in front of your face, and you believed. You received the Spirit in your life, not because you brought out your resume and said, look how awesome I am. Paul says, no, it's because you believed, past tense. And if you're a Christian today, you've had that moment. When there was a service or a podcast or a conversation with a friend or you were laying in your bed or you were at a camp or a VBS, there was a moment when, unlike other moments, the, 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 the cross, what Jesus did was so vivid and it made sense to you in your heart and in your spirit and you received the Spirit of God into your life and a new heart like he describes in Ezekiel. And the reason was not because you tried really hard. It was because you Believed. You believed. And then Paul says, but then after the second line, you said, well, I believe, but now i got to try really hard. And Paul says, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. In the past, you received the Spirit because you believed, and today you will receive the Spirit if you believe. If you believe. Paul is saying that the way you become a Christian and the way you grow as a Christian is the exact same way. 
That you don't enter into Christianity one way and then live the Christian life another way. You become a Christian by believing and you live the Christian life by believing. You become a Christian by recognizing and understanding what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that you needed a Savior. You were incapable of saving yourself. And so you needed a Savior, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit helped you in some supernatural way to understand that you are not your Savior, but Jesus is your Savior, and he did it all for you on the cross, and he paid the price, and now you just need to believe, and you did believe. But if you're here and you would say, you know, I feel condemned a lot. I feel anxious a lot. I feel fearful a lot. I don't necessarily feel the Spirit of God in my life. Paul would say, it's because you stopped believing that you needed a Savior and you cannot save yourself. And that because Jesus went to the cross and paid the price, that the work is done. That you are accepted by God. It's done. So Andrea said, like, what's the point? Like, how do, I, how do I live the Christian life and how do I know it's working? And I said to her, you just got to believe. To which she was like, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking. You don't understand what I'm asking. I know that part. I mean after that. And I said, no, 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 there's no after that. That's it. That's the Christian life. You don't try to be really good for God. You just believe that God already sees you as really good. You don't try to be perfect for God. You just see that God already sees you as perfect. To which Andrew said, no, 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 you're not hearing me. I understand that. I believe that part. You're not hearing my question. What do I need to do? I said, no, 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 I hear your question. You're not understanding my answer. That's the answer. You got to believe. You got to believe in Jesus. She said, no, 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 I believe in Jesus. I'm talking about the after that part. I said, no, 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 that's the answer you got to believe. She exhaled. We sat quiet. And she said, okay, I understand what you're saying. But what about being a mom? What about being a teacher? What about being a wife? What am I supposed to do about that? Like, what, what, how, how do I become uh, a better mom, more, more non-anxious mom? How do I become a better teacher, feeling like I'm teaching for purpose? How, how do I become a, a spouse that loves you more and serves more? Like, how, do I, how do I do that? Like, I, I know to be a Christian means to believe in Jesus, but how do I do the wife, mom, teacher stuff? You probably know what I said next, don't you? I said, you have to be a mom or a teacher or a wife who believes in Jesus. And there's a lot of reasons why this feels impossible to accept. So unsatisfying. Um, the biggest is probably because you know you're a beast. You know you. And the hardest part of being a Christian is truly believing how God feels about you instead of how you feel about yourself. That's the hardest part of being a Christian. It's not cocaine and, I don't know, gambling and rated... Our movies or, I don't know, adult-rated movies or the Antichrist. That's not the hardest part of being a Christian. The hardest part of being a Christian is to truly believe that God doesn't feel about you the way you feel about yourself. It's why you do all the other stuff. And there are so many things we wish we could change about ourselves, And we truly can't believe that God would not 
need us to change to. We don't actually believe that it's a kiss from a beauty that turns a beast into a prince. And for many of us, we understand it, but we don't believe it. We understand it. No, 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 I, Jason, I get what you're saying. Jesus came. I get credit for Jesus' life because he took credit for mine. I got it. You understand it, but you don't believe it. You don't actually believe that you get credit for the life of Jesus Christ. You can quote it, but you can't accept it. You don't actually believe that when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect, as a beauty, as a son or daughter of God. And see, only Christianity, it's the only religion that determines the outcome before you begin. Christianity is the only place you can find an identity that is not based on your performance, your win-loss record. And what we're really talking about is self-esteem, isn't it? What we're really talking about is how we feel about ourselves. So let me ask you do you, do you, do you, do you feel this nagging, lingering sense of condemnation in your life? Are you always feeling anxious, afraid? How much does criticism bother you? Do you fall apart? How often do you feel superior to other people? If you would say there's a nagging sense of condemnation, or I'm always feeling anxious or afraid, or uh, criticism kills me, or I, I, I am very judgmental and look down on other people and feel superior, it's because you understand what Jesus did, but you don't believe it. That you are no worse or no better than anyone else, or no worse or no better today in the eyes of God, because you're relationship with God and your judgment from God has already been settled in Jesus Christ. He sees you as perfect. You have been, the Bible would say, if you want to use like a Bible theological term, that you have been made righteous. You've been made righteous. So what would it actually look like if you truly believe that God sees you as beautiful and perfect and righteous and no failure and no success could change his feelings. What would that feel like? Why don't you think about that for a second? What would it look like and what would it feel like tomorrow if you really truly believed that no matter what you did, it could not change the way that God sees you, feels about you, or how he saved you? No failures, no successes could change his feelings about you. I think it would feel like confidence. I think it would feel like peace. No more low self-esteem, no more high self-esteem. I think your failures wouldn't crush you. Your successes wouldn't inflate you. I think it would mean that all of the things in our life that we think of that are after the second line, I think it would mean that we wouldn't have to have them, but we wouldn't be afraid to have them either. What do I mean? Well, let's think about money for a second. Let's just take a million dollars. It's not what it, not what it used to be, but we'll just take a million, okay? 
If I truly believed that my standing with God had already been established, that I'd been made righteous, and when he looks at me, he sees me as perfect and no failure and no success could change the way he sees me or how he feels about me, then that means that I would not have to have a million dollars. My financial situation would not have to improve. But it also means that I wouldn't be afraid to have a million dollars either. Because, see, low self-esteem and high self-esteem can really play tricks on you. Because someone with, let's just say, a, a, a high self-esteem in the terms of pride would say, look at me, I've got a million dollars. It's my hard work. Lazy people are poor, but I'm a hard worker, and it's my intelligence, and, and, and I'm important, and I'm special because I have a million dollars. That would be one way that not believing that Jesus sees us as perfect would play if we would have to inflate ourselves because of our money. That would be one way. But there's also another way. And that's to say, well, I would never be one of those people who needs a million dollars. I'm not greedy. I'm not like those rich, greedy people over there. What are you doing? You're trying to prove to God that you're a good person. And the way you're proving it to God is by saying, I don't need all that money, God. So because we don't have confidence, because we don't believe that God already has determined how he feels about us as perfect, we either have to have it or we're afraid to have it. Because we don't believe that God already sees us as perfect. I don't have to drive a nice car, but I'm not afraid to drive a nice car. What, what about um, uh, uh, homeschooling? I was thinking about this example. Like maybe, maybe you're a parent here and you say, I want to homeschool my kids. And there are lots of great reasons and great motivations for that. But it's also possible that there are some motivations and reasons because you're still trying to attain something or prove something or feel some type of way, right? Maybe your motivations would be fear or maybe it would be people's opinions of you. Or... And so someone who is getting ready or is homeschooling their children could potentially not believe that Jesus has already seen them as perfect. And so how would that play out? Maybe they would say, um, maybe they would say, well, I, I have to, it's a scary world out there, and I have to be in charge, and I have to be in control of my children, and, and, and I'm going to take a stand, and I'm not going to let my kids, valid, got it. Or it could be, well, I'm better than because I'm not sending my kids to public school, got it. What's happening in those type of situations? Self-esteem. I don't actually believe that God already has seen me as perfect. And so I have to raise a quality of kid that validates my existence. I have to raise a quality of kid that proves to myself and to everyone else that I really am a good person. But a person who truly believes that Jesus has already decided and sees you as perfect says, I don't have to have perfect moral children, but I'm also not afraid to have really good kids. I'm not worse than anybody else because my kids are not following Jesus, but I'm not better than anybody else because my kids are following Jesus. My kids' decisions and where they are in life and their relationship with Jesus or not their relationship with Jesus in no way changes who I am or my self-worth or my identity because my identity has been established in Jesus Christ. We don't have time, but we could keep going. If I wanted to stereotype gender roles, I could flip it from homeschooling and talk about our kids' athletic performance. And I could say that someone who is struggling to truly believe that they are not already seen as perfect by God would put a lot of pressure on their kids to validate their existence. Or 
they would go the other way, right? Well, we're not, we're not like those families who have to be all in the sports all the time. We're not like that. Well, what's happening? Both people in two different approaches are trying to prove that they're really good because they're not actually convinced that God already decided that they are. Or what about when you look in the mirror and you look at your physical appearance? See, a person who wouldn't be totally sure that God has already decided they are perfect would either say, I've got to be skinny, I've got to be attractive, I've got to be muscular, or they would say, I'm not vain like those people who have to be skinny or attractive or muscular. What's happening? Two different approaches to the same problem. God, please accept me and see that I'm good. I'm strong or I'm not vain. And in every situation in our life, after the second line, minute by minute, hour by hour, we've got to go back to actually believing that our identity has already been established by Jesus Christ. And we're, he already sees us as perfect. And so I think there are probably three common responses to this. I think some people hear this and they go, yes, and they feel liberated, free to sin. Yes, I'm so glad I came today. You're hearing this and you're saying, I finally don't feel trapped into spirituality. Some people hear this and they feel angry. There's this kind of self-righteous pride like, wait a second, you're telling me that I've been good all these years and now other people don't have to be? Or you're threatened by what this could potentially lead to in people's lives. Some people hear this and it takes away all their motivation because all of the reasons they did everything they did for God was fear-based. And you're telling me I don't have to be afraid. So like sometimes there's a season where it's like you're telling me I don't have to go to church. You're telling me I don't have to pray. You're telling me I have to remember. And, it, and, it, and it, all, the motivation up to that point was all fear. You take that away and it's like, well, I don't know. But how should you feel? How should you hear this? What you should hear is that you are free to fail. You're free to fail. That you don't have to, but you're not afraid to. No more high self-esteem, no more low self-esteem. You've got nothing to prove, nothing to earn. So I asked the question at the beginning of the sermon, how can you know if you're growing I'm a Christian, Jason. How can I know if I'm growing? Let me tell you how. You're less and less motivated by fear and insecurity and shame. And you feel less and less like you have anything to prove or anything to earn. And you're starting to do the things that Christians do. But not because you have to. But because you want to. That's how you can know. That's how you can know you're growing as a Christian. Is that you truly start to believe that there are no requirements slapped on to that salvation that you could not earn. And the more you believe it, the more you begin to want to do the things that Christians do. But not because you have to. You want to pray. You, you, you want to spend time with God. You want to come to church. You want to love people. You want to forgive your enemies. You, you want to do those things. And you say, well, Jason, that sounds good, but I don't want to. I'm not saying you're not saved. 
I believe at some point you probably did believe. But if you find yourself not wanting to do those things, or you find yourself always living with all of this condemnation or anxiety or performance, all of these things, it, it could be that you, at one time you believed, but you stopped believing. That today, right now, at 11.01 a.m., God sees you as perfect. He sees you as perfect. It's already established. And so you're beginning to believe, you're growing and beginning to believe that you don't have to do anything for God, but more and more, you're starting to want to. Let me say it one more time. How can I know that I'm growing? What's the Christian life and how do I know that it's working? You know it's working when you're beginning to believe that you don't have to do anything for God. But more and more, you're starting to want to. That's how you know it's working. So let me, let me say one more thing, and then we're going to pray and, and have an opportunity for communion or prayer. If you're here today, and this is all new to you, I want to say something. Keep thinking. Keep digging. Keep showing up. Whether you are a religious person who's been around church or religion for a really long time and what you're hearing me say sounds as foreign to you as like German, or maybe you're not a religious person and you're hearing this gospel message for the first time and there's something inside of you that really does want it to be true, but you're not exactly sure that it is, that there would be someone who doesn't hold your mistakes against you someone who isn't grading you, someone who isn't judging you, someone that you don't have to prove your worth to, someone that, that, that has already decided that you are lovable and perfect. Keep asking. Keep showing up. Keep digging. Keep wondering if it could possibly be true. And I believe that you're going to begin to sense the Spirit of God moving in your life. And more and more what's going to happen is you're going to start to want to do the things that Christians do. Not because you have to, but because you want to.